Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of Earth Repair Radio. We have disrupted this sacred cycle of the relationship between the forest and the ocean and the forest and other large bodies of water. If we are not looking at coronavirus as a message from the earth, then I think we're missing a huge part of it. And I think the earth and climate change and the Anthropocene extinction are begging us to slow the hell down. We've only been burning more. We've only been doing larger resource extraction projects. We've only been consuming more every year, even with this information. And Corona, like I said, it's the only thing that's actually made a dent. We're strapped into the roller coaster now. So, <laughs> Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison. And today our guest is Ayana Young. Ayana is an activist, restorationist, and media personality living in the Northern California Redwoods. She created the Million Redwoods Project, dedicated to propagating the biodiversity of the old-growth redwood forests. She tells stories of environmental and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration in her popular podcast, For the Wild. Today, we talk about her work in restoring the redwood forests and also go into some deep earth wisdom about the nature of the coronavirus currently sweeping the world. We cover some fascinating new ground, so please enjoy this interview with Ayana Young. Good morning, Ayana. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. Uh, Just watching the sun come up over the garden, and although this very dry winter is disturbing, I'm also just feeling so good in this winter sun. So it's a weird place to be to enjoy the, yeah, what climate change is bringing at times. So yeah, it's it's a weird state, but I am still enjoying this winter, early spring sun this morning. Yeah, it's the same way up here in Oregon. And I've had uh, similar feelings where I'm like, wow, I know it's warm and dry and early, but God, it feels good. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So um, you have done some really interesting things in this last span of years here. And one of the things that uh, you may be most known for is your Million Redwoods project. And that's something that's you know really interesting to me and hopefully the listeners here on Earth Repair Radio. And I'd love if you would talk a little bit about that because I think I think it was something like the largest like um, restoration Kickstarter in history or something like that. Anyway, it 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 definitely received a lot of attention and you um, generated a lot of resources. So I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, what that project's all about, how that how that got started, its inception, and and where you're at now in your progress. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, to start off just um, with the Kickstarter story, it was, yeah, it was the most successful backed farm project in Kickstarter history. So we had the most people donate to that project in their farm category. And it was honestly a complete surprise. Um, I had never done a Kickstarter before. I certainly did not know what I was doing when we were putting it together Um I even talked to Kickstarter beforehand and they told me not to do it because 
it was uh, being launched at the end of thanks or the end of November, which is their worst time um, in terms of traffic on Kickstarter. And I was asking for a hundred thousand dollars, which is one of their most difficult goal amounts. And so I really look at that Kickstarter as a kind of a, a miracle in some ways and definitely connected a spirit into the forest. And I feel like I just got really lucky because I'm in service to the forest and somehow the forest made it happen. And so, yeah, it was completely uh, just a fluke that we ended up being as successful as we were. But I also think that we spoke to people's hearts around reforestation, which I think was really meaningful. And even though it was called the One Million Redwoods Project, we were speaking to themes that were far beyond just numbers and analytics um, around carbon sequestration or number of trees. Although we did talk about that, it really wasn't the, the gist of the project. And how the project came to be let me see, where do I begin with this story? Because it's really a part of my own journey with learning how to be in relationship to the forest. And so I never really grew up with a strong relationship to the forest. It wasn't something that I cultivated until later. Uh, well, I guess still early in my life. It was in my early 20s. I had moved out to northern Oregon. And at that point, I had just completely madly fallen in love with the temperate rainforest and I had come from Manhattan so I really was in a very different ecosystem and I started to study herbal I started to study herbalism I uh, was living in this little cabin on seven acres of old growth forest that were amazing um, and that seven acres was surrounded by thousands upon thousands of acres of timberland and so I really firsthand got to see the difference between an old growth forest and a second growth forest and a third growth forest and a clear cut and a plantation forest. And I also at that time, and this was back in 2013, I was a commercial mushroom hunter. So not only was I exploring in the forests of Northern Oregon, I was also in Washington, British Columbia, California, and I was directly connecting to these places, whether they were severely damaged because they had just been raped and pillaged or because they had been protected. And I had so much heartbreak over what I was seeing and what I was experiencing with the state of our forests, especially in the Pacific Northwest, and realizing how little old growth there was left. And of course, when we lose these old growth forests, we also lose a ton of biodiversity and soil health and fungi. And that was just so incredibly heartbreaking to me. So I started studying restoration ecology at the University of Victoria. And although there was a lot of great things that I learned for my toolkit, so to speak, it wasn't enough for me. Um, there was something that was lacking. And maybe it was the experiential part. Um, and, you know, probably other things, nothing about the program that I have negative things to say about. It just wasn't my way of uh, learning. So I came back down to Northern California and I was at the confluence of this creek and river where I live. And I was praying to the forest. I said, what can I do? What can I do to support you? How can I how can I be in service to you? And what I heard was to protect 
to protect the forest that is still standing and to plant the children of these great beings. And so over the last six years, I have been in deep commitment and research and development with the One Million Redwoods Project. And it's been a crazy journey. Um, I built a number of ponds and this 300 foot swale. I kind of created the like blank canvas for this nursery, this native species nursery. I also call it a living library. And, um, and then I created a lot of relationships with local landowners and also landowners north to north of me for assisted migration projects. I've done a now in my second year of assisted migration of redwoods into Washington. So we planted redwoods. We did a lot of yeah relationship building with organizations, local landowners. I also did a number of trials with different um, seeds, seed seeds of different trees, because what I had learned in my research was we are in a major seed scarcity issue with native plants. Like, of course, we know we have some scarcity issues with agricultural plants. You know, we know that there were many varieties of potatoes and now we only have a couple of potatoes in the store. Well, just imagine native plants. Like there's so little uh, diversity that has been collected. So I was really focusing on seed and doing experiments with that. I was focusing on soil types because I really wanted to get out of the model of importing soil potting soil with perlite and lava rock and peat moss because I didn't <clears throat> I didn't want to mine somewhere else just to plant redwoods. I, I thought that was um, just counterintuitive and I don't want to work in that way. I don't think that this project or anything I do or anything we any of us could do can be perfect or purist, but I think that we can do less harm in our practices. So definitely looking into the soil and how to create forest soil without importation was something that I've been researching and developing. And then even into the pots, if I were to have bought new uh, tree plant or tree pots, it would have cost somewhere around $400,000. Even the UV protected ones, they last three to five years. So what, I'm going to throw a million pots in the landfill in three to five years? I mean, that's again, crazy. Like I don't want to go down that path of conventional reforestation and of course, there's the whole reforestation, restoration, industrial complex that really focuses a lot on heavy fossil fuel uses. And I'm much more interested in low tech methods so that we're not just continually using so many resources, even for our restoration projects. So what did you do for um, your pots? So yeah. So right now we are, uh, we, we've built a few different tools um, to create these in-ground pots where we're compacting the soil and the clay content. And, um, and it's really exciting because one with these in-ground pots, um, we have the, we can use a lot less water because it's not evaporating through the black pots. Um, and two, also the water is then going into the ground, which will recharge the groundwater, which is also super exciting. So, um, and even like with the fencing, you know, I looked into all the deer fencing, and it's like, this is crazy, you know, not only the money, but just the amount of resources being used. So we're using native black cap raspberries and manzanitas, not only as a fencing mechanism, but also as the shade structure to uh, shade the seedlings that are growing up. So, nice. yeah, really every single part of this project, I have been um, really digging deep and not 
just giving way into what's convenient or easy. Yeah. You know, I was just, I was in India for the winter and um, I visited this, this waste, he called it a, uh, like a waste recycling park, basically. And it was showing all these different examples of um, biogas and ways to take plastic bags and turn them into fuel. And they were taking cow dung and they have this press. I actually have a picture of it on uh, my Instagram. They had this press where they were taking cow dung and pressing the cow dung into pots, into planting pots. And it seemed like a really nice, uh, a really nice idea because you have built-in fertilizer into these pots, and then in many operations, especially oh, wow. you know larger scale cattle operations, uh, there can be you know especially confined operations, uh, you could have a real pollution problem with the concentration of manure. So, this little idea for you there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you're talking about fencing, deer fencing and, you know, using biological um, solutions instead of industrial solutions in your nursery. Yeah, absolutely. And it's more exciting. It's more creative. It's much more beautiful. It's good all all the way around. Yeah. So um, what what stage are you at right now uh, in your process? You've got these ponds and swales, and you've been researching and getting your methodology and your materials. What's what's happening mm-hmm. now? Well, right now we are doing major cuttings and propagations. Um, we're doing redwoods, different genetics of redwoods, really focusing on climate change and trying to propagate species that we believe will have a better chance at potentially oh, and. Uh, you know, what we're seeing, drier winters, um, more degraded soils. We're also, um, so yeah, redwoods, Pacific yew. Uh, we've been doing a lot of, um, oh gosh, what else is out there? Oh, there's so many. There's probably, a, we probably have 50 different plant species that we're propagating at the moment. And then I'm also building our team out, which I feel so excited about. I love working in teams. And so we have been doing tons of interviews for the nursery manager and we've been getting some great consultation from some really amazing folks so that we can do this project with as much integrity as we possibly can. So yeah, we're building the team and we are doing tons of propagation and it's so fun because it gets me off my computer and out into the forest and me and my clippers and it's just, uh, I love it. So you're talking about, you know, migrating redwoods with climate change. You're talking about planting them up in Washington. Why don't you talk a little bit about what are your thoughts about migrating the, you know, you said assisted migration of redwoods northward. You know, what's your, what's your macro view that's led you to uh, be doing that? Well, well, you know, I, I think assisted migration could you know is interesting it's not my main goal my main goal is really biodiversity enhancement and forest protection and defense but i think assisted migration is something that we should be considering because as these ecosystems change um they may not be able to support the species that are growing in those areas historically and as we've seen but the redwoods, they have shrunk to a very small patch of area 
basically from, well, I wanted to say Northern California, but there are even some in Central California. So Central California up to Southern Oregon, just at the border. So when we're witnessing less rainfall, less fog, um, and so much clear cutting of these trees, there's only 4% of old growth left of redwoods and only 2% of those are protected. And then the rest of those old growth patches have either been logged and they're not growing back and they've been taken over by Doug fir forest or uh, oak savanna, um, or they're growing back in a, in a very intensive way with a lot of poison sprayed on them. So what I'm trying to say here is that the redwoods that still are here are really challenged by us humans and what we're doing to them. And so the assisted migration is interesting because if we really care about certain species, uh, I think it's intuitive of us to understand where they may be more adapted in the coming years. Now, I've questioned this a lot and I've thought, well, maybe it isn't my place to try to safeguard these species. Maybe I should just allow the earth to do what it will. And if the redwoods don't survive, then they don't survive. And maybe we shouldn't do assisted migration. Maybe we should just let climate change play out and see what trees do adapt to the regions that the redwoods once were. Um, But then, of course, there's that other voice that just says, well, maybe just try. Maybe just work with community and and just see if these trees and these, these ecosystems can be supported by us moving them along. So, you know, it's a interesting question of is it does it make sense is it ethical is it worth it is it healthy for these ecosystems to be moved by us but we also know that we've been moving around plants and seeds for thousands of years and um, so it's something that I know we've been doing for a long time uh, and I'm interested to see if this can be supportive to these trees. So do you imagine that you know, up here in Oregon, Washington, that that well, well, first off, I don't, I don't know that everybody understands that nar- that redwoods really grow in this very narrow band. Uh, what is it like from from the sea mm-hmm. to twenty twenty miles inland, basically? Is that about? Yeah, right? I think in some cases twenty miles inland, and I think in some cases it's even less. Yeah. It could be like six miles. Yeah. So, are you imagining basically that? with a warming planet that ecosystems are are migrating northward. I mean, that's one trend trend people talk about that, you know, uh, Central California will be more like Southern California climatically and uh, Northern California will be more like Central California and Southern Oregon will be more like Northern California and, you know, that, that these ecosystems will shift. And so that basically the place where we see redwoods now, Central California, Southern Oregon, that 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 band will basically uh, of of the area from Southern Oregon to Central California and from the sea to 20 miles inland, which is their current range, that that band will actually shift northward. Is that is that what you're saying, basically? I mean, I don't that's not what I'm saying. I don't uh, believe in that simplified version so much. I know that that's what some people feel. I think that that's, I think that's just too linear for climate chaos. I think we're going to see things that are very unexpected. I don't think that we're, I don't think that there's like a straightforward rhyme or reason of like how it's going to happen. Um, And so, yeah, I don't, 
don't necessarily think like that. I think that there's elements of that that I could see happening. Um, but with the lack of precipitation and fog, I know that the redwoods will have a more challenging time um, being healthy. It's not even just propagation or or things like that. It's, you know, for some folks who live in the redwoods, especially in the southern redwoods, they can see the redwoods struggling. I mean, they're yellowing, they're yellowing faster. And then if the immune system of these trees are more compromised, then they're more susceptible to disease. Um, and so that's another issue is just trying to keep them healthy by giving them what they thrive on, which is fog and water and sunshine, of course. So yeah, it's really challenging. And I don't want to pretend like I know the answers or how climate change is going to play out or how the redwoods are going to fare in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, honestly, five years. But I think it's interesting. And I think it's worth experimenting with in a um, in a humble way. And like we were talking earlier about the Archangel Project, the genetics of the biggest redwoods. And I know they planted their redwoods in Port Orford, Oregon, which is on the coast. So um, clearly they had thought about assisted migration or they would have planted their big redwoods down in their historic zone. So yeah, people are doing it. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's a silver bullet solution. I think it's just something to try. Um, and like I said, it's not the main, uh, point of our project, but it's a, it's a leg off the spider of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know that, um, from the kind of scientific perspective, the U S forest service has, some really, really scary maps of the current and then projected uh, Douglas fir range between now and the end of the century. And, you know, I, I live solidly in Douglas fir country here in Oregon, and they have a major northward migration of the Douglas fir range. And they show that a lot of areas that are existing right now uh, by the end of the century will not have the right temperature and rainfall conditions for Doug fir to grow anymore. I actually did a whole podcast interview, um, with Tom Ward, um, permaculture elder from Southern Oregon, uh, talking about the, you know, the, the transition of the current Doug fir forest from what it is right now and how that could possibly transition to, you know, the forest of the future, hopefully without the transitionary agent being massive forest fires, right? So, you know, that mm-hmm. was that's kind of where my question came from because, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, let's see if the Doug fir is moving up because it's going to be too warm and dry here for Doug fir, then, you know, does that mean that redwood is moving up as well? And are, are those same conditions, the fog and the moisture are going to be, you know, more conducive uh, farther north into the future? Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We're strapped into the roller coaster now. So. Yeah, we're strapped. <laughs> we're gonna see one or the other. What's gonna happen? How many trees are you projecting to grow at this point? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I imagine over the lifespan of the project, it will be millions of trees. But we're not only focusing on trees; we're also focusing on understory plants, flowers, um, and also fungi 
uh, fungi diversity. So, okay. yeah, I imagine it'll be millions of trees and species, other plants. I mean, and uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm really excited. I'm and I'm really excited to make the methods we're using much more low tech and less resource intensive, and mm-hmm. getting more people from the community together because. For me, I want to be a support system for other folks to propagate and grow and plant native plants. I think that doing it as a network of people is not only uh, can not only reach wider lands and places and more hands, uh, which will create more plantings, but also I think it's beautiful. I think we need to turn to a direction where we're coming together in community and working to restore places together and not just leaving it to certain organizations or government agencies, but something where we learn as lay people how to be earth stewards again, because it's in our blood, it's in our ancestry. We've been doing this since we've been human. Um, And I'm really excited by the thought of more and more people getting involved because I also think that people want to be involved. I know from the podcast and other work that I do, people are constantly asking, what can I do? What can I do? How can I be involved? How can I give? How can I support? And and I think that people will feel so fulfilled when they get engaged with plants Mm -hmm. um, and supporting the ecosystems. And in that as well, they'll be building a relationship with whether it's the forest or whatever their ecosystem is that they're in. And that I think is where we need to go. We, the future is relational. Um, at least a healthy future is. And so, yeah, I'm really hoping that this project can spur inspiration others to do their own projects that are um, restoring wild places. Yeah. And you know, another important connection piece, I'd love to hear your, uh, your take on, you know, we've talked a little bit about the uh, migration of redwoods, you know, up and down the, the coast and the sort of west coast forest types. And I know that you've I checked out some of your podcast episodes when you're up in Alaska talking about protecting the ancient forests up there. And so that really has the interest of people all along the west coast of the U.S. Uh, and then for people inland they may not necessarily see the connection between a forested West Coast and a Mm. climatically stable interior of the continent. So I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about some of the impacts of this reforestation of the West Coast, some of the climatic impacts inland that that could Mm. cause. Yeah, well, it's super interesting. Um, There's been a lot of study on how forests pull in large amounts of water vapor from the surrounding regions and nearby bodies of water. And then that vapor condenses into rain and the local atmosphere pressure drops. And so, um, you know, some people call it like a biotic pump. I've seen it called um, this, uh, or, you know, some people more poetically say that the forest calls in the rain which I like to speak more in that language mm-hmm. personally. Um, or, you know, I think there's the um, evapotranspiration uh, theory. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think that part of the droughts that we are dealing with on the West Coast is because we have clear-cut 
so much of the forest. Um, and we've, we have disrupted this sacred cycle of the relationship between the forest and the ocean and the forest and other large bodies of water. And so um, I remember when I did an interview with Diana Beresford Kroger, who's written a number of books about forest and planting forest. One of her books was called The Global Forest, actually. And she was talking about how um, when she traveled to Japan, fishermen were actually replanting the forest along the coast of Japan because they believed that uh, a lot of the reason for the fish decline was actually because the relationship had been disrupted mm. and the rain had stopped. And so, you know, I think there has been probably an, a number of um, studies and conclusions showing that the forest will call in this rain or call in the, the vapor and the rain and it will um, transport that rain into interior ecosystems. So when we're disrupting that, we're not just disrupting the rainfall pattern on the west where the forests are, we're also challenging that system as it moves inward or interior wise. And I think too, people uh, have been talking about that from the Amazon rainforest. Uh, the Amazon has been getting drier and drier. What has in some places been the Amazon rainforest is now turning into a drier savanna type ecosystem. And for those of you who know where the Amazon is, it is an interior rainforest. So, you know, that's a huge, huge lesson for us, just seeing what's happening to the Amazon, the drying of that region. Um, so it's pretty amazing how much the forest really does, in a sense, create their own rain and create rain for other regions. And uh, I think that when we started industrial logging, we didn't even scratch the surface of the consequences that would be creating, not just in the places that we were logging, but surrounding areas as well. Yeah, it's really interesting what, what you're saying about the Amazon. I did a, another interview with um, Zachary Weiss of Elemental Ecosystems, um, and he's a permaculture site installer goes all over the world and he's really really into water and he was talking about the biotic pump and how the fact that it's it's possible that the amazon bringing in less water from the ocean there is actually keeping more uh water vapor and heat potential out in the ocean that has to go somewhere and that that could be the cause of some of the more intense super storms that um have hit the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast and everything. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all connected. Well, it's all connected. And yeah, when, when we extract resources like the forest, it creates a feedback loop. And I think, you know, Zachary was kind of speaking to that, that when we, it's like a Jenga uh, game, you know, we keep pulling out these pieces and at some point we pull out too many and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah things falling apart in the, in the Jenga game kind of brings up a little bit the, the elephant in the room in our entire civilization right now, um, mm. which is this massive virus that is spreading around the world. The WHO, World Health Organization, yeah. just today declared it a global pandemic. And um, even mm. though I, I want to talk about forests, it's it's hard to talk about the planet right now and, and the analogy you made of the, the Jenga board without you know, talking about this whole earth system. And I'm curious, like if, 
what what do you think is is happening on the on the the Gaia level? You know, what's happening right now in the world? And, you know, if you've had any thoughts about how this virus plays into this macro world view. Oh gosh. Yeah. Such a big question. Yeah. Maybe I don't, if that's too big, that's yeah. okay. You know? yeah. No, no, no. I I'll, I'll speak to, I'll speak to what I can. Um, and I'll re- preface that by saying that in no way am I a pandemic expert. Um, and I also want to preface it by saying, I know that a lot of, a lot of people will be heavily affected by this. And I want to be cautious and um, thoughtful because many of the people who will be most affected are the folks who don't have access to the privileges that many other people have, um, especially in the United States, for instance, like usually it's the poorest people, the people of color who are most affected by things like this. Um, so, you know, I want to say that before I kind of dive into my other thoughts, but I think that if we are not looking at coronavirus as a message from the earth, then I think we're missing a huge part of it. I think if we're just kind of thinking of it as a virus and looking at the economic aspect and kind of just getting into the science of it and not really realizing that this is a wake-up call for us and this is the earth speaking to us very strongly about what the predicament we've got ourselves in, then we're, yeah, we're missing the point. Um, When I think about that, uh, I think they're saying that it was a bat that, carried this disease, um, or this virus. And I'm like, Whoa, what are the implications of that? That the animal queendom or kingdom is, is coming to the humans and saying like, you have been destroying us. You have been murdering us. You have been stealing us from our families and our lands. You have been destroying our homes. And here I am to, to wake you up and show you that we also have power and we have agency and we, we're, you know, we're, 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 I don't want to say fighting back, but maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of spiritual elements to this virus. Um, of course there's the fact that, and you know, probably the people listening, you, you all probably have seen the pollution map over China and that there's been, much cleaner air over China because the factories have closed. Um, people are not traveling as much. Huge festivals are being shut down. Like South by Southwest got canceled. I think Coachella just got postponed. I mean, those are that's hundreds of thousands of people not traveling, not using resources, uh, slowing down. And I think the Earth and climate change and the Anthropocene extinction are begging us to slow the hell down, <laughs> to stop using so many resources, to rest, to stay in place, to ground, to build community, to stop being so damn entitled that we think we can just go wherever we want at all times and have whatever we want delivered to us at all times. I mean, of course, like in the United States, I'm not speaking globally. There's so many global implications that have already started. I mean, the stock market is crashing in the United States, Europe, Asia, we have the um, the fossil fuel uh, industry being affected. I just saw a article in the Washington Post titled "White House Likely 
likely to pursue federal aid for shale companies hit by oil shock coronavirus <sighs> downturn. So I'm like, what yeah. the hell? Like, this is, uh, you know, this is really speaking to us. Um, and uh, yeah, I think is the time when I have friends call me and they're worried. I'm like, this is the time to ground down, to build community, to get food security, to make your medicine, to rest, rest, rest. Like we need our immune systems in order to defend ourselves against the virus and our immune systems again really rely on us sleeping rely on us resting and with the way that our dominant culture has fed us um what we should be doing it's like fast 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 go 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 grind 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 you know just keep going keep doing be busy 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 you know it's like oh i'm so tired i'm so busy i'm so tired i'm so busy it's like well you know right now being tired and being busy actually puts you at risk of getting this virus. So what is that saying to us? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really, it's, it's very intense. Of course, there's, you know, these lockdowns that are happening in Italy. People have probably seen the whole country has been now um, on lockdown there. I've just heard up in upstate New York, um, I think New Westchester has been locked down. I'm sure we're going to see more of that. I'm sure we're going to see a lot happen over the next month. I don't see the virus just somehow miraculously disappearing. I think maybe potentially there could be a miracle, but most likely if we're looking at exponential growth or the exponential model, like it will continue to spread. And yeah, I think there's the the fear people are, some people are scared and some people are just totally ignoring it. And I'm just like, wow, the hubris and the entitlement of just ignoring things like this. But you know what? I'm not even surprised because so many of us are ignoring climate change. We're ignoring natural disasters. We're ignoring the Anthropocene. We're ignoring fact, uh, slave labor. We're ignoring factory farming. So I'm not even surprised that people are ignoring Corona <laughs> because it's like, I think also in the United States, there's this type of, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, exceptionalism of like, oh, well, we're just exceptional. We're so entitled that like, it's not going to happen to us, or we're not going to be affected by it. And in a lot of ways, some folks in the United States have been completely sheltered from a lot of issues. Um, and we're soft and we're, you know, we haven't been exposed to things like war on our territory for a lot of folks who, you know, like, for me, I'm in my 30s, like, I've never been exposed to what's happening in Syria. I've never had to deal with some of these bigger issues because I've been sheltered as a citizen of the United States and being a privileged person. So, yeah, I think there's so many implications. Um, I think I don't know where it's going to go from here. I could imagine it spreading. I can imagine things getting stranger and stranger. But for me, the message I'm taking is that the more than human world is speaking out. They are um, trying to speak to us right now. They are telling us to slow down and they are telling us to stop destroying their home. They are telling us to stop trafficking them. Um, and I am listening with reverence and I, yeah, I'm just kind of in, um, in humble servitude because I realize that I am just like a very meager little human in this world that has so much power that, um, I can't even begin to understand. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, just like, 
can't the society just slow down? Can't we just take a pause and take a breath and step back? Um, one of my friends was talking to one of their friends in China who was actually presenting kind of the the beautiful side of quarantine, saying that all these Chinese men were like, work, 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 and their kids never saw them. And, you know, it's such a fast-paced, really grind, highly productive society. And that, you know, aside from the trauma of losing loved ones and, you know, people being sick and, and kind of the pain of that, there's been a lot of instances of just families actually getting to spend time together yeah. with nowhere to yeah. go and nothing to do, you know, for weeks and even yeah. now months on end. And, you know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like the, the, the silver lining on the cloud, just like you said, the sky's clearing over, um, you know, right now, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about my family here and, you know, I mean, I moved, I moved here about 12 years ago, basically when my son was just a baby and we were looking, you know, we wanted to get out of the desert. We wanted to go, you know, we were in Arizona and, um, the, the whole border tension was really in our face where we were living and we could see, um, you know, a lot of the things that kind of came to pass and even the wall ultimately, I mean, a lot of that was seated in, in a lot of the feelings going on. And like I said, we, we had the privilege to say, Hey, let's go where there's actually water and farmland. And we're like, let's go to the place that is just the nicest place for, to raise kids where it's like kid paradise basically. Mm -hmm. And you know, a place where it's safe and mellow and there's water and food and, and a, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a population that basically thinks like, like us instead of being in Arizona where we were a little bit of, I felt like a pioneer species in Arizona where here <laughs> in Western Oregon, I feel a little bit more part of like the swarm. And so, mm -hmm. so we moved here. Um, and you know, in 2008, when the, uh, the economy was collapsing at that point. And I was at that point, I, I thought that that was it. I thought like the entire economy of the planet was going to collapse. And I was like, you know, we got to go to where there's actually resources um, and, you know, water namely. But now I find myself in this place that's really beautiful. And I've been here for long enough where I know my neighbors. I love the people around me. I have a beautiful garden and greenhouse and all this, you know, all these fruit trees and plants that I've planted now and things that come to maturity. And, you know, so, so when we're talking, we're like, wow, quarantine. So we're all just going to hang out here at the homestead. And, you know, aside from whatever trauma in, in its kind of insulated sense, I, I can see how, you know, th there's, there's an element of vacation from the grind and the speed where there's time for reflection, there's time for bonding, there's time for connection. And it could actually, for a lot of people that don't end up suffering from sickness or suffering from shortages of food, for a lot of people, this could actually end up being a really sweet time that puts their lives into perspective and, and reflection. Yeah. So let's hope for that instead of the the madness and the fear. I guess that's my that's my prayer for the situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, a time of, of changing priorities and that kind of, you know, circles it back to like, yeah. to the reforestation of the West coast here and the climatic yeah. implications inland of actually uh, restoring and regenerating the water cycle. Right. So, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think everything's an invitation to find new beginnings. And so hopefully the virus mm-hmm. uh, and this whole situation will be, um, hopefully it'll actually bring a lot of energy back to projects like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that reforestation initiatives will probably only pick up as climate change continues to rear its, uh, rear its head because I think people will be looking for, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word solution, but looking for a type of solution to climate change, to water issues and planting trees and forests is kind of <laughs> a great way to protect us and to restore um, protection to the land. And so, you know, for me, I I'm definitely against monocropping and uh, and spraying poisons on forests. But even if somebody asked me, well, to mitigate climate change, would you rather see chemtrails sprayed or plantation forest planted and I, I would rather see plantation forest planted honestly uh, and also and, and I could say that to a lot of um, to a lot of strange geoengineering or high-tech ways that people are talking about how to quote save the environment um, now of course like it'd be wonderful if most of the tree planting reforestation projects were doing things uh, with more biodiversity in mind and long-term the forest and hopefully those bigger projects will do that but um yeah we'll see we'll see i think we're like i said we're strapped in now like it's going to be a wild ride i i can feel that and i used to feel really scared and and panicked and, and it's not to say i don't feel fear anymore but there's just this deep type of acceptance of just knowing that we didn't turn the boat around in time. Like we didn't, we didn't do what we should have done 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago. We didn't do it. We didn't do it six months ago and we're not doing it now. And it's interesting to see that coronavirus is the only thing that has slowed us down Yeah. because even as climate change information has come out and the science has come out and the numbers have come out, we've only been burning more. We've only been doing larger resource extraction projects. We've only been consuming more every year, even with this information. And Corona, like I said, is the only thing that's actually made a dent in our consumption. So I think it's super fascinating. And um, yeah, I think like we're, I don't think we're going to turn the boat around. And so how do we deal with what is? And it reminds me of um, deep adaptation, which is this school of thought that I've been learning from through a mentor, Joanna Macy. And so I'm, I'm definitely in that school right now of deep adaptation, just realizing that there is probably going to be a lot of suffering and, um, insecurity coming for us. 
And how do we prepare ourselves spiritually, psychologically, physically, um, mentally, all you know, in all the ways we can to handle what's coming and what already is here, you know, honestly. Yeah, you know, that's really profound. And I, I really, I hadn't thought of that until you said it, the whole idea that, you know, this is the warmest month ever. Nothing, right? We have, you know, extinction species. It's ramping up. Now he lost this species. Nothing, right? All of these different things, the massive superstorm, nothing. Like nothing has slowed us down. This is actually the first thing that is at this point threatening, but it's it's actually happening. Like things are slowing down. It's kind of amazing. And I hadn't really thought of it in that way. Do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, things that people could do in the slowdown to actually enrich themselves and the planet? How can people use this, this giant slowdown, um, for the good? Yeah. Well, I think slowing down is a practice for many of us. And I think it's going to be a challenging practice for many of us that are so used to having extremely full schedules and traveling and having this kind of strange freedom to do whatever we want at any time, you know, within reason, of course, and it's different for people who have different levels of privilege. But um, I think just practicing slowing down and practicing psychologically being okay without having so much to distract us. I think that's can be really hard for a lot of people. I know for me in my own journey, it it took a lot of emotional journeying to be able to slow down and be not only okay with it, but actually learn how to find the joy and the beauty and the, the healthy quality of it. So I think there's that, you know, like use this time to really practice slowing down, especially because the future really may, um, force us to slow down in a lot of ways. So use this time to prepare for what could be coming in in a psychological form. I think, um, learning what kind of weeds, quote unquote, weeds and plants grow around you and make medicine from them to boost your immune system because we need to be healthy. Um, you know, it's, it's when we're not healthy, everything else kind of can fall apart around us. So taking the time to learn how to make medicine from plantain or dandelion or daisy, whatever, you know, is abundant that grows around you. I definitely do not say like go deep in the forest and like pick, um, uh, endangered plants. Like, you know, we have things that are, that are abundant, that are, um, really there to help us as our allies. And I would also use this time to build community. Um, I do believe in collective liberation. And I think coronavirus is showing us that like no one is well unless we are all well. Um, and, And if you're stocked up and if you're really well, but none of your neighbors are, that's going to be an issue for you. (laughs) You know, you're not, you're not going to be able to just like save yourself or your family forever if everybody around you is sick and starving. So get community based and and try to support your community in preparing with food, medicine, water. Like I keep bringing up the psychological, spiritual elements. I think those are n- never given as much weight as they should have be getting. Um and then and 
I think, you know, taking care of those human needs first, the the psychological needs, the health and the food needs, um, the community needs. And then beyond that, of course, taking care of our natural world, I think really staying up as much as we can on like what's happening with these, you know, shale subsidies or these shale federal aid shit, you know, or seeing what kind of other weird resource development projects could just secretly try to get on by while everybody's freaking out about something else, Mm. you know, keep your finger on the pulse because there might be strange things or pipeline, you know, who knows could be coming up that we need to be aware of and be healthy enough so that we can stand up against different resource extraction projects like what's happening in Unistoten right now with the um, Wet'suwet'en Nation. What's that? So uh, it's a pipeline fight happening in British Columbia on indigenous territory, and they have uh, been creating sacred fires on the road to stop the trucks from getting in. Indigenous youth have taken over the steps of the um, parliament building in Victoria and uh, been getting arrested. And so I think that um, being healthy enough and being able to support direct action campaigns is always really important. And, um, and so I think that in the slowing down, we can reprioritize on what actually matters. And what actually matters is the health of our families and our, and the earth that is our family. If the earth is unhealthy, we can't be healthy. And so hopefully the slowing down will really curb the distraction for consumer culture and just BS that really doesn't matter. That's just taking up space and, you know, every, and just really like killing the planet for these distractions that don't matter. So I, I think that what you said about the reprioritizing feels extremely important. So those are a few things. And honestly, those are things that I think we should always be doing. But I think yeah. now for some of us, we actually may have the time, the space to give more of ourselves to them. Yeah. I think there's really an opportunity here to, to reframe the whole uh, coronavirus um, as a time for slow down reflection, connection, deep healing, and realignment. I, I don't think, I, I think right now there's only fear um, but I think mm-hmm. that I think that's an, another narrative that uh, would be very uh, very powerful to get out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank yeah. you for articulating that really well because mm-hmm. I definitely had some light bulbs going off above my head here. Yeah. Um, how can how can people? Yeah. How can, I've been thinking. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, no, I've just been thinking about it a lot. So it's it's nice to talk with you about it. How can people learn more about what you're doing and, and be connected to you? Well, um, you can go to our website at forthewild.world. And you can learn more about the One Million Redwoods Project. You can also learn about the podcast, which is um, almost a, like a bigger project. Or I wouldn't say bigger, more well-known than even the Redwoods Project. And um, the podcast, we talk with thought leaders all over the world about the intersection of climate, social and um, environmental justice issues. And so you can listen there. You can, like I said, read more about the One Million Redwoods. You can learn more about our work 
in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska in stopping resource development, protecting land and big conservation projects and our work in the Tongass National Forest to keep roadless rule in place so that old growth logging does not continue. Um, we also have an online press or social media presence on Instagram at forward.the.wild on Facebook. We have a Patreon page and we also have a newsletter that you can sign up on our website. Oh, and then also you can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, all that jazz. Um, and yeah, and if you want to reach out to us personally and ask questions or if you want to be a part of any of our projects, you can email it up, email us at connect at for the wild dot world. Nice. Now, actually, there was one more thing that I was interested in talking about. It's kind of on a completely different topic. Um, and you just reminded me of it. You know, you had this super successful Kickstarter campaign. And then I looked and yeah, you have this Patreon page where there's people that are basically supporting you monthly with, uh, you know, a fairly decent sum of money for that kind of thing. What advice do you have for people who are trying to fund themselves to do good work? Cause you seem like you've been pretty successful at this. Mm, yeah. Well, I really believe in building community again, like, you know, the more that I realize that I give to others and support others, the more support that I'm going to be getting. And of course, that's not the reason to support others, but it's just something that happens. So I have been really building community for a long time. And so whenever I need to reach out for funding, I feel like I have these angels waiting to support and I feel so blessed and grateful for that. So um, if you do really want to do good work, you know, support other people and uh, build that community up and hopefully they'll support you when you need. Um, I really have liked crowdfunding because it has allowed the community to be involved rather than just doing grants alone, um, which are kind of more like behind the scenes and people don't really see or, or they don't get to be, interact in that way or support people in that way. And like, if you only keep it to grants, but, um, we also write grants and yeah, I'd say be creative. You can really, I think being transparent is really important. Um, and I have mixed emotions about being on the internet, but I'm definitely uh, on the internet a lot. Even though I live in the woods, I have a, a satellite dish that connects me to the outside world. And so um, there's so many ways that social media and crowdfunding and newsletters can really reach people to support your project. And if you're able to communicate really well um, to folks and ask them what you need, I think that's something that I've learned. But like when I just kind of want people to help, but I don't actually clearly ask folks for what I actually need. It's kind of shocking to see the difference um, between what I am able to receive or not. So that's been one of my biggest lessons is being really clear on the needs of the projects. And I feel like people will really show up once they understand if like, if you're just asking for money, it feels really ambiguous. It's like, well, what, what, what is money? Like we need money. It's like, well, how much for what? Like, where do I give it to you? Mm -hmm. But if you're really clear with people, like, like we need this amount of money and this is what it's going to do. And this is where you can donate. And it's actually really easy. 
and it's clear and it's simple and it's fast, I think more people are willing to do that because, you know, going back to the busy thing, most people are extremely busy. And so if if you don't make it um, streamlined, it's hard for people to take a lot of time out of their day to try to figure out how to support you. So I think really creating systems that make it easy for people to step in and be a support, like that's going to be, um, going to help people with success. Yeah. Now you were talking about how, you know, you support community. And so there ends up being this reciprocity. Um, do you want to just give a little bit of a little example just so people can visualize that a little more? Like how, how, how do you feel like you've supported the community and, and kind of gotten reciprocity in return? Yeah. Well, um, you know, for instance, I've done, I've done a number of events where I go and I speak and I teach and I show up for these communities, um, of gatherings. And then I go to the gatherings and most of the time, the more community based gatherings, they don't pay, you know, for travel or pay for speaking gigs, you know, that's, that's just not in their budget. And so maybe I will be kind of out of my pocket, not maybe, but we'll have to be out of my pocket to get there to bring all my supplies to give all this energy to the community at a gathering. But then um, what I gain in return is support in the future. So that's one thing of how to support the community is um, giving your time and giving your skills to groups of people that will hopefully reciprocate at some point in the future. Um, and then through the podcast, you know, we've built up a amazing network of land defenders and thought leaders and all different types of people who we uplift their stories and we actually fundraise for other, we fundraise for other people a lot. Um, and we help support their projects. So when the time comes that we're in a crunch and we need to fundraise, they're more likely to support us by sharing our fundraising campaign because we've put all this time and effort and work in supporting them when they are in need. So those are just two, you know, off the top ways that we do it. No, that's great. I just wanted someone who's listening to have an actual kind of tangible course of action to take if they were yeah. thinking about how to actualize that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. What book are you reading right now? Um, well, I know I need to read the overstory and I haven't yet, but uh-huh. that's something that's on my list. I've been told by so many people to read it. Um, I do. I've been reading just so many manuals on native species. So I haven't really been <laughs> reading like book cover to cover, but really in my library, I'm just looking up right now, just so much so many books on native species and forestry and restoration and manuals and guides and that kind of jazz. So, um, a little tedious and not so entertaining in a, in a more story narrative way. But I will say like, I've read so many, uh, nonfiction books over the past decade that I'm really more interested in narrative based fiction books at this point. So, um, anybody has any recommendations shoot me an email or let me know on social media because i'm definitely looking more for story at this time than i am for information i feel a little information heavy right well you've read have you read starhawk's books you know the fifth sacred thing and city of refuge yeah yeah Yeah. years ago that's that's a great um yeah that's a great recommendation though yeah city of refuge is the you know the 20 years later she she made the sequel which right yeah yeah 
That's great stuff. Great. Well, um, thank you so much, Ayan. I think actually what, the thing that came to mind when you were talking about uh, the sci- you know, the um, native plants manuals was uh, head, heart, and hands, right? And so that's oh, representing like that. the head part there, but you have the head, the heart, and yeah. the hands. So um, I appreciate uh, everything you've shared today, and I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you so much for spending the time talking to me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you as well. It's been great. Have a wonderful day in Western Oregon. Yeah, all right. Me too. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.